Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Alex Blondo. Alex is a feral theologian with a PhD from Luther Seminary and a native prairie restoration practitioner, as well as a photographer. In this episode, we discuss two of his wonderful articles on the theologian philosopher Paul Tillich. The first article we explore is Prayer Does Not Work, Paul Tillich and Centering Prayer, And the second article we look at is Paul Tillich, Salvation, and Big, Unnecessary, Crazy Travel Adventure. This was a really amazing conversation. There was so much that we explored in relation to Paul Tillich and his big ideas. But we also explored things like the meaning of life, desire, curiosity, the importance of adventure, and truly finding the sacred at the center of all things even finding the sacred in the quotidian. Uh, We explore the movie The Secret Life of Walter Mitty and what it might say to us today, and so much more. I really connected with Alex and his humility and his passion and his energy. I am grateful for uh, Ryan Lind. Uh, A shout out to you, Ryan. I know we don't know each other personally, but maybe one day we'll connect. Thank you for connecting Alex and I. And, and also thank you for the really kind Apple podcast uh, rating and review that you left uh, for Therapy for Guys. It's much appreciated. And, and in light of that, I want to encourage anyone who's listening, who's benefited from either this episode or any episode in the past, to take some time to not only share my content with people that matter to you in your life, but to go onto the Apple podcast app and leave me a rating and a review uh, those things really matter, and they really you know, help spread the word and get this podcast into uh, more people's homes. As always, I want to encourage you, and especially in light of what Alex and I talked about today, to not just keep these ideas in your head, to not just reduce the meaning of life to some kind of proposition, but to go on a, on a micro-adventure, uh, join another person and explore some of these ideas and even live them out. Uh, Take the structure of your life 
and find ways to dip into the great depths, uh, have an encounter and an experience with the sacred. Thanks again for listening. And as always, guys, I hope that you will continue the conversation. So Alex, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast, Therapy for Guys. I'm super excited that we connected on Twitter. Uh, I guess a shout out to Ryan Lind, who I don't know personally, but it seems like maybe you guys do. And uh, I'm really grateful that he kind of connected us. And yeah, I'm just super excited to explore, you know, Paul Tillich and prayer and adventure and all these wonderful ideas with you. And uh, yeah, just to get a chance to, to know you at a deeper level. So thank you for, for being a guest. Well, thanks for reaching out, man. This is uh, this is pretty cool. It's not super often that uh, people find uh, my wheelhouse to be of a lot of interest. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm pretty eclectic and I'm all over the place. My wife just thinks I'm I'm nuts, but you know, I I, sure. I, I kind of I, I was I was actually the the guy that I was talking to last week. We were just I don't know that we had the best language for it, but we were just saying that, you know, we kind of follow the energy in our psyche in terms of what interests us. And for a variety of reasons, Paul Tillich has kind of been a figure that's been really important to me. And then just lately he's kind of come up again and shoot, he's even kind of come up in the larger cultural landscape a little bit. I don't know if you saw the interview with Harrison Ford where he, yeah, uh, I thought you posted that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't check it out, but yeah, I did notice that, which is super rare. Isn't right? that crazy? Like, yep. like, like, in fact, are, are you, are you okay if I just kind of read it real quick? Cause I thought he had some interesting things to say. Yeah. He said, there's this Protestant theologian named Paul Tillich who wrote that if you have trouble with the word God, take whatever is central and most meaningful to your life and call that God. My mother was Jewish. My father was Catholic and I was raised Democrat. My moral purpose was being a Democrat with the big D, but it didn't apply to a political point of view so much as it applied to nature. I didn't have any religious construct, but I do think that nature and God are the same thing. The mysterious origin of life, science tells us how it happened. Prophecy tells us another story. I found that everything in nature, the complexity, the biodiversity, the symbiotic relationships, it's the same thing that other people attribute to God. Now, aren't you glad you asked that question? Now, let's get back to the funny shit. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice, nice. That is super cool. Yeah. So, okay. Before we kind of jump into Paul Tillich and, and some of your incredible articles that I had the privilege of reading over the last few weeks, I kind of wanted to ask you about a couple of the roles that you seem that, that you have in your life. Uh, you, you have these categories on your social media, and, and I kind of wanted to start with, I guess, the, the role or the identity marker, feral theologian, which I've never heard. I thought that was such a cool way to put it. What, yeah. what, what does that mean, feral theologian? Well, yeah, I, that, that came up, um, as I was trying to describe a job transition that I was undergoing and, Got you. and um, so it, it was a weird thing that I ended up in a theology program at all and a PhD in particular, I've never seen myself as especially academic. And so it was, it was an odd odd twist of life that I found myself in that place. Um, and then my wife and I decided that trying to go through with, um, you know, adjunct teaching positions and, you know, chasing, chasing temporary spots, wherever you can find them across the country, that kind of stuff just really wasn't the life that we wanted for us and our small kids. Sure. Um, we decided to move back to 
uh, my hometown of Fergus Falls, Minnesota, where we both felt like just really deeply at home every time we would come to visit. And we we came back here and rooted ourselves. And uh, that was in 2016. Uh, I finished up my PhD that year and began building a house. And that is still ongoing. But, and and like, uh, like literally building a house. Literally building a house, right? That's so incredible. I, I build, you know, not so much as a dog house prior to that. So... <laughs> Between um, between having the time to do it and and the wonders of, of YouTube and and knowing how to knowing how to not knowing how to know when you don't know things and how to ask the questions mm. and find people that do um, allowed me to like do most of it myself. Um, so that took a long time, and then um, from that point on, um, you know, and that was that was. That was good. I would say that felt wonderful to go from creating this intellectual structure in the form of a dissertation. Sure. Everybody looks at and and I don't know what you're doing. Like I don't know what you're doing with your time. I don't know what you like. All this is just a deep mystery to everyone who knew me. Um, and then to take my energy and give it to something where I could just go, that's what I'm doing. I'm making a house you can walk through the rooms and I can show you how I'm doing it. And, and that felt really good to do something that tangible for a season. Um, but at the end of that season, when we moved in, uh, we needed to pay for said house. And, you know, I, I looked around at what, what my options were as a highly educated, uh, deeply unemployable human being. At that <laughs> and uh, I became an electric utility meter reader. Oh, Okay actually a job that that still exists in some form in some places of the country where I would literally walk around through people's backyards in small towns throughout western Minnesota and eastern North Dakota and uh you know put on on foot between 12 and 20 some odd miles a day wow uh, and and that that was kind of an identity crisis experience mm. a bit right who am I what have I come to um so I worked through a certain amount of that. Um, and I think it was, it was around that time that Twitter showed up on my radar, Okay, which was, which was kind of fun because now for the first time I could curate this little community of, of people that, that were interested in the idiom that I was interested in speaking out of. Um, and that was, that was really fun. Um, so from there, I transitioned out of meter reading like last September into um, prairie reconstruction work. Yeah, so man, I don't even know what that is, but that was one of the ones I was going to ask you about. Sounds really sure. interesting. So when you talk about, you know, God in the natural world kind of stuff, mm. uh, this was this was a huge thing for me. Um, I I came to the realization, you know, as I was doing my work, driving through, you know, these small towns and, and back roads and stuff, I would find these little, little chunks of, of, uh, of native prairie that, that had never been tilled and were filled with an unbelievable diversity of life. And mm. so I would stop and I would just spend time in them. And every time I would, depending on where the season was, everything was different. There were different plants, there were different little insects. Um, and, and it deeply surprised me. I didn't realize that this kind of interconnected, beautiful, unexpected natural life existed right around where I lived. I was always used to experiencing that somewhere far away in the mountains, sure. right? On the North shore of Lake Superior where, you know, uh, there was just this rugged wildness. So, um, so that was, that was an exciting thing for me. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about my connection to the natural world through prairie plants and um, have actually been doing a lot of, growing and seed collecting and, mm. and these things myself. So, uh, so yeah, it was reflecting on that transition out of meter reading into, uh, into the prairie reconstruction stuff, because um, there was, there was a sense in which I was just out in the field. Then at that point, I was doing work on, on federal land properties and things like that. And, and it was, you know, I was still thinking theologically the mm. whole time. But I was not within the structures of cultivated theological thought any longer. Got you. That's the feral. Yeah, yeah. Feral in the sense that I'd been turned loose, right? Um, doing my thing outside the walls of, of uh, 
the the typical forms that that occurs in. Sure. Oh man, I love that. I appreciate you kind of like narrating that that part of your life. So if I can just take maybe one step back in terms of the PhD program, and I think it was Luther Seminary. Yep. Why that institution? What 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 drew you there? Was there a certain thinker, or was that your tradition? Sure. Um, so i I began thinking theologically in in any sort of a formal way through blogging when blogging was just beginning to be a thing in like the early two thousands. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> So I started connecting with uh, a lot of atheists, and they all seem to be from Great Britain for some reason. Uh, <laughs> really smart dudes, and then one uh, one Anglican guy from New Zealand, and and that began like this community of conversation that occurred for I don't know three four years. Wow! And and I loved it. I loved it. I mean, because they they would just their minds were relatively free and they were curious and interested. And we would have all these, these really fun fights online together. Um, and so I just decided like, I need to, I need to, I need to figure out what I believe. Right. Mm. Cause oh boy, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right. Like my honesty just seems to lead me in directions that seem to like impact the meaning of my life and that kind of stuff. Um, sure. So I, I decided at the time, I was exposed to like Greg Boyd. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I have, he, yes. He was like open. big in like the open theology yeah. mm-hmm. scene for a while. Yeah, open theism, and he was just like he just seemed like a genuinely decent human being, and I just I just liked him. Um, so I figured, well, if if Bethel University, so this is my master's degree, if Bethel University is good enough for Greg Boyd, it's good enough for me. Mm. I, I guess I think far enough into that real to realize that he didn't. Uh, <laughs> wasn't able to hang around it. <laughs> and so I went, I went to Bethel. I did my master's there and discovered that uh, it was a uh, ideologically deeply divided institution at the mm-hmm. time. Um, and so I would, I would have uh, spiritual formation professors, uh, systematic theology professors, philosophy professors that I deeply resonated with. Gotcha. And then oftentimes in the more biblical studies side of things, uh, I was a thorn inside of of the professors there, and and I don't know. I think it may have been that I didn't I didn't come from evangelicalism. I came from Catholicism. That okay, was, that, that was my upbringing, and and I was always I just always had a critical mind, and that may have been mistaken for intellectual rigor um, because mm. I was encouraged to go <laughs> to do a PhD because I always kept pushing the boundaries of things and asking questions and, and some of my professors thought that was neat. So, um, and it was, it was Tillich um, that led me towards Luther. I had a, a rogue scholar friend of mine uh, at the church that we were attending at the time who kind of like almost like a dirty magazine passed me Paul Tillich <laughs> history of Christian thought, like under the table at coffee hour one day. I, I do uh, wonder what the centerfold of Paul Tillich would have been. <laughs> <laughs> And and that 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 book, it's a weird like that's a weird way into Paul Tillich, his history of Christian thought lectures. Mm. That's just not a typical way people find him, but um it was it's what I needed and it was so healing for me. And so I found uh I found out that there was a scholar at Luther, Dr. Lois Malcolm, who um Tillich was kind of her theologian in a lot of ways. Okay. So I with her, and that's that's how I found my way into Luther, and Luther was, for me, just, just such a healing experience. You know, wow. um, for the first time, um, I was able to feel faith in a way that wasn't also tearing me apart. Mm. Um, like, yeah, it it was it was it was so freeing, um, and so I still hold a very very warm place in my heart for for my PhD experience. Got you. Wow. Yep. Yep. Now now, Alex, w- w- whether it's that that first time reading Tillich or or anything at, at the seminary or in your PhD program, c- can you reflect on maybe some of the things that began to change, like like maybe like a paradigm shift, or what were some of the ideas that you were wrestling with that gave you mm-hmm. that sense of freedom that you're talking about? That, that was so healing. Right. Um, so like the core of it for me um, was, was the way Tillich talks about 
paradox. Okay. And paradox is at the heart of um, what he calls final revelation mm. in in Christ. So he has this way of of talking about how Christ is the final revelation in the sense that he was able to be completely transparent to like I struggle like I struggle like spitting this stuff out because Tillich is he tends to be so abstract that his ideas don't resonate well with with a lot of folks so so forgive me if this is too obtuse but he was no that's to, good go, go for it man <laughs> I'm completely completely um, transparent to the divine ground right so he's able to manifest um, the depth of being and in the process give himself away completely without losing himself. Mm. And, and it was, and it was in that the giving, giving of himself away completely without losing himself. There's, there's, and in this, this paradox, the heart of it has like so many different ways into it, but sure. that was, that was one way that I remember going, Hmm, this is interesting because everything that I'd been exposed to prior to this was me trying to save Christ. Mm save the heart of the tradition, like prove him historically through, you know, really good arguments about how, you know, the, the, the women at the tomb would never have been included in source material because they were untrustworthy at the time, you know, this kind right. of stuff. Kind of apologetics. Yeah, exactly. To try to hold on to the thing. And I felt if I could prove it with enough good arguments that then the meaning of the tradition and the meaning of the, you know, my life therefore would hang together. But that was always a anxious place to be because you can mm. never you can never prove you know the unconditional <laughs> right right it doesn't work like that and and to the extent that you feel like you must or that the you know god hangs on arguments they're always if you have any shred of honesty like always have to be open to doubt like because we we're not we're not infinite we can't know the past like any historical argument is always tentative open to change open to revision upon new evidence and all that kind of stuff and that that's not that's not the logic of faith Mm. um that's an anxious place to live that's that's a fearful place to live and so what i realized in that is that um the the paradox of of christ you know in a certain way manifesting the divine in 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 not like being absolutely present but in actually the the love that lets go um mm. for the first time i felt as though um that the letting go the release um was the doorway to the freedom and and that you really can't take that away anymore you can't lose that because it already lost itself wow that's powerful. Yeah. So do you, do you think before you were kind of more in a state of, yeah, wanting to control or holding on and, and, and through Tillich's work, yeah, you kind of shifted mm-hmm. to that, that letting go paradigm. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Were, 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 were you struck at all by, you know, the way he talks about God as the ground of being and, and, you know, language around ultimate concern and yeah, I, I guess I'm curious in terms of even like theology proper did, did did you go through some changes in how you thought about, you know, the divine? Oh, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in, in the logic of it, it's fairly similar. I mean, God went from a thing out there mm. separate from myself who may or may not exist that, that I, you know, could access or prove or justify on the basis of more or less good argumentation. Sure. Um, which was a stressful place to me because I was never super great at like these intricate philosophical arguments. I didn't, I didn't find them interesting. And so that was, it's like, that was a bummer of a place to be, to be like, Oh man, my faith hangs on like, you know, whether these arguments cash out, but oh, I don't really care about them. Right. <laughs> oh man. And, um, and yeah, so, so the shift, the shift was basically from thinking of God as a, as a, as a possible object of my thought as a possible thing separate from myself out there to, to that which lies beyond the split of all separations and is at the heart of everything and mm. therefore part of at the heart of myself as well. Um, and that's why faith is ultimate concern makes sense. If, if at the very 
it's at the very depth of ourselves is a point of connection with divinity itself. Like, you know, it, it makes sense. Yeah. Like our, our faith comes from God and our faith is actually a manifestation of God. And so there's been a couple of ways that, that have been kind of helpful for me to think about that in the time that has gone on since then. One is um, I heard first heard this by Philip Carey, I think Eastern University, I think he's from. Um, he had a series of lectures on Plotinus. Okay, and yeah. He talks about Plotinus's myth of the sphere, and and I just mm. I love it. I feel like it gets its it gets its arms around so much in a, in a really simple image. He says, imagine imagine all reality, all existence is a sphere, right? And we are like faces. All of us are faces on the outside of the sphere, and we're all looking out. Mm. And as we look out, we experience ourselves as separate, disconnected, capable of conflict. You know, I need my space. You can't take mine and, and, and th- these sorts of dynamics. Um, but the moment of, of spiritual change occurs when instead of looking out, our faces turn and look in. Mm. And when that motion occurs, you see that your very being is radiating from a center from which all other being is also radiating. Now, at that point, you realize that none of us are absolutely separate from each other and that all of us are connected. And the divinity is not something that is separate from ourselves either. It's something from which we are all also connected. And and I feel like that that gets its it gets its arms around uh, a much more ancient way of feeling reality. Mm. Uh, it gets its arms around a lot, a lot more of how early theologians like um, Aquinas and Augustine and you know Pseudodionysius, the Areopagite, and and these early earlier thinkers thought of divinity much more in those terms and and in the centuries preceding or not preceding but the centuries that came after god became um not the center of all things not the heart mm. of every the, the deepest reality of of anything that is god became something out there another being in the world of beings that may or may not exist uh, the highest of course sure um, but not not something that we we can know in an inward sense in any way. Um, so we've, we've really lost that art of, of inwardness, I feel, mm. uh, which, you know, that that's part of the centering prayer thing for me as well. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that changes things a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And I'm glad you, you made the comment about the centering prayer. Cause I think it's a good time to maybe transition into that phenomenal article that you wrote. I love the title, you know, prayer doesn't work. Um, if, again, if you're cool with it, I, I have this, this, there's a line from it that I think kind of captures it really well. And, and I was just hoping maybe you could just talk more about, yeah, the article and kind of what it means to you. So you say, my constant refrain through it all has been that prayer does not work. The reason for this I've tried to show is that work is a bad metaphor for what happens in prayer. To a certain extent, any word taken from the realm of our normal experience will inevitably be inadequate when applied to God's eternality. But the word work is especially ill-suited, connoting as it does something within our control that can be mastered with technical proficiency. So mm-hmm. in light of that kind of statement and, and what you were just describing in terms of you know locating God at the center of all things— how, how does that conception of divinity help us think about prayer, what it is, what it's not? I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I mean, to begin with, in, in the simple simple way of thinking about it, if, if prayer is, um, if we think of it too, in, in two terms that just are too familiar and normal to us, mm-hmm. it, and we're, it's easy to think of, basically a conversation with another being that is separate from ourselves that, you know, this never, this, this, my temper, but just never was well suited to this to begin with. But so then we have this conversation and, and God is a weird sort of object in that we don't like 
typically hear a voice back. We don't see that towards which prayer is directed in that way. And, and in some sense, folks get trained to then start just scanning the world for evidence that, that it was heard or that their prayers have been answered or, you know, that they did it right, that they're praying from a right place within themselves, um, that their desires are pure and, and, and it, it can become, um, it can become a painful process for, for people. Um, especially when, you know, one's critical awareness starts to get peaked a little bit and, um, just the whole apparatus of, of how God is thought about starts to break down a little bit. Uh, prayer starts to feel potentially a very lonely, futile, mm. silly experience yes. um, under those conditions. I think too, um, if I can just like pause you real quick, you know, from, from, from my personal experience and then working with a lot of people in therapy that uh, wrestle with anxiety, particularly OCD, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement. This is always the case with prayer, but but I know for myself and for many others, it almost became a compulsion or a way that actually our anxiety got worse. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we, we did the checking thing that you're describing and it became like this unhealthy obsession. And so, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it's usually framed as something that can help people soothe their anxiety, but I think oftentimes it actually exacerbates it or can. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and and there's also the phenomenon known as spiritual bypassing. Absolutely, that, heard of that too. Yes, right? sir. Like, yep, and and using using that act as as a way of of not confronting the real you know psychic movements that are happening within ourselves. Right. In um, um, and so so centering prayer is is I should just describe it for those who are not familiar with yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, please. Disarmingly simple process it's it's very akin to zen meditation mm. um it it does not have an objective focus it's it's really a practice of intention and release um so the, the practice is is one sits in a comfortable position and there is a word that one chooses beforehand um it's typically called the sacred word it's not chosen for the content of its meaning but as a sign of intention and and one sits for I don't know typically twenty minutes or so, uh, set a timer so you're not thinking about am I done yet that kind of deal. <laughs> yeah. And and you you sit and you let you let your mind um, as much as as much as you can just gently gently just release and anything that is a thought that um, comes to you from anything from a bodily sensation to a memory to a, a worry or starting your to-do to list in your head or an image or any of these things, right. anything that, that occurs to you, um, you often, you know, while repeating the sacred word, you just gently, that's, that's a huge part of it, just mm. gently, gently release. And they come back, you know, the thoughts always keep coming back typically. Um, but that, that is, that's it. That is all you do. Yeah. You sit, they come to you and you gently release. And and it's and it's intended to engender a a, a graceful posture towards yourself. Mm. Um, it is intended to create a form of awareness that is not focused on a particular thing. Mm. Um, it's not it's a form of awareness that's not uh, already wrapped up in your normal program of life of trying to preserve yourself and extend yourself and, and make your money and make right. Be productive and successful. Uh, Yep, exactly. All that stuff. (laughs) Um, And, and that, that is interesting in that to the extent that our focus tends to so often become predominated by our, our everyday mode of experience, like mm. the program, the story that we're running in our head, our attention and the way we direct it and the stories that we're filtering it through um, very often just shaves off unbelievable amounts of life and experience mm. and possibility and potential in the process. And, and to the extent that God is reality and the deepest, truest part of anything that's real, we're not connecting in in fruitful ways with 
God, you know, our life is not a prayerful experience to the extent that we we've formed too rigid of ideas of, of how it needs to go. Mm. Um, and so centering prayer is, is a way of kind of breaking that open, um, allowing us to be more um, attentive and responsive to what is both within ourselves and the world around us. Yeah. Oh man, that's so good. And and I, I, I just, I hadn't made some of the connections, but I just think Paul Tillich and, and his theology is just a beautiful way to like undergird the the practice of of centering prayer. I just I just so enjoyed and I would encourage anyone to go and actually read the article. I'll include the link in the show notes. I think you just do a, a masterful job of exploring how his theology kind of serves as a it's like a theological framework to help us make sense of something like centering prayer. So so thank you for 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 making those connections. That was great. I'm, glad, I'm really glad you picked that that particular paper out too. I I didn't do a, a ton of writing while I was doing my academic stuff. Um, that that was an opportunity that was floated to me uh, by a friend of mine who was in with the word and world people, and and I didn't have time to write it, you know, right? Like, sure, I didn't have time to think about it. All I just right. had to it out quick, you know. I got to get this thing done. The deadline's coming, and and you know, it's funny how often some of the best things you end up producing or when you're not overthinking it especially oh, for so true but uh I, so i finished that and i got i got the the draft back from the editor gal and she said i've i've been i've been working here editing these papers for 40 years and she said this is this is my favorite paper i've ever read wow man so, what a what I an affirmation dude you can just like you can just go that you're done yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that one stuck with me. Yeah, no, it's very readable. And, and here's the thing, you know, I, I, I don't know what I am anymore. I'm not sure I identify as a Christian anymore. But And, and I work with a lot of people who are kind of in the same boat. I, I just think that article and Paul Tillich and some of these things we're talking about, yes, will benefit, you know, Christians, but but I think are for a much broader audience, people that are seeking and searching and wanting to wrestle with their ultimate concern and, and and wanting to maybe figure out what it is that the sacred actually is and how they can relate to it. And so I think something like centering prayer can be something that even someone who's not in the Christian tradition can engage in at some level. I don't know if you would agree with that, but that's sort yeah. of how I think about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always said that, that encountering Tillich was, was finding someone through whom I both lost and found my faith for mm. the first time. Man, that's a really good way to put it. I like that. Um, and, and 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 as time has gone on, I've I continue to think that the, the really the only kind of Christianity worth paying attention to is the kind that doesn't give two rips whether or not it's Christian. Oh um, yeah, that's good. Like there's and, and both that's of good. these both of these things are they, those are both phrases that are around that paradox that I'm talking mm. about, right? Because Christianity as a name, as a label, as, you know, uh, as a signifier of one's group status or something like that is like really uninteresting to me. Um, I, I find, I find when I'm asked the question, are you a Christian anymore to, to not be, it, it doesn't get at anything that, that I'm really excited to talk about. Let's just mm. put it that way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and even for our own self evaluation is like, well, If if the point of, of of faith is is coming to know the really real in some way, mm. um, to to love it, um, then then the labels and the names for the thing are are so secondary. Um, so anyway, I feel like that last thought tapered off. No, 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 I love it, man. I'm just like so resonating with you. Do you think it's it's a pretty good time to maybe go into that that second article that you wrote? And I have it in the show notes, but I, I forgot the name of it. It's on adventure mm. and salvation. Oh, yeah. oh it's yeah. so good. Paul Tillich, something. Oh, Paul Tillich, salvation and big unnecessary crazy travel adventure. I think that's yes. No, that's exactly yeah. it. So, so. 
Man, there, there's so much that I want to kind of explore there, but I was kind of hoping you could help us kind of get into it because I also wanted to talk about The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which I mentioned before we hit the record button that I rewatched for like the third time. It's it's a really great movie. And, and I don't think you quote that movie in that article, but you do in another blog that you sent me that kind of touches on the same ideas on adventure. So, so, so maybe you could explore, yeah, what led to kind of writing about Tillich, adventure, salvation? Like, how would you want to get into that? Because I, I think there's uh, so much there. Sure. Well, it started with the flu. Um, okay. <laughs> I, was, I was really sick. Oh, man. Um, I was really sick, and I was laying in bed, and, and I was just looking, you know, just scrolling through YouTube, just looking for things that, like, would make me feel a little better in some way or another. Sure. And, and, I, and I got fixated on this guy named Alistair Humphreys. Yeah, and, that was interesting. I'd never heard of him, but that was so cool to read about. Uh, yeah, he's so he's a British professional adventurer, right? And so what he does is he just goes off on these these goofy, uh, pointless adventures uh, and and videotapes himself and talks about it and stuff. And and I just I just loved it. I, I watched him take a raft uh, down a river in Iceland. You know, he had walked across, just like set off a journey across Iceland and tried to go over a glacier and went through some rapids and, and all this kind of stuff. And for whatever reason, that kind of activity has always been very compelling for me. I think, I think of, uh, into the wild, yeah. uh, you know, those, <clears throat> those sorts of, uh, you know, counter anti-cultural, uh, quests sure. have, have always gripped me, and I and I have to blame I have to blame my aunt for that. Okay, uh, she would always give me the very best books. And, nice. Uh, she was similarly kind of not really cut for this world kind of person, and and so it, it goes back to her. So so I was sick, and I was and I was watching watching these things, and <clears throat> a friend of mine uh, who's connected at. Uh, Oxford in England said, "Hey, um, there's going to be a, a conference happening on Paul Tillich here. You should present a paper." And I'm like, "Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be, you know, Mr. Central Minnesota uh, <laughs> paper in in Oxford. That's that's my people. That's where I belong." <laughs> uh, but I decided, well, I don't feel good. This isn't going to happen anyway. So. May as well just I don't know write what you care about. Like how do you mm. connect logical thinking to to your life in a way that moves you, and and that's what I came to is is like a, hmm. There's something about adventure. There's something about this desire that's not not specified, right? Just this this pull towards the unknown out in the world. Yes. Uh, this this hope for experience, you know not what. Um, and and all that happens along the way that I'm like, that's really fascinating because I I remember I remember a quote by by C.S. Lewis where he talks about his experience of, of joy. Right? Yeah. And he spoke about it in terms of this this desire so so sweet that any satisfaction would be less than the desire itself kind of thing. Mm. And so I was just connecting those ideas and the unknown, the unspecified, um, but also just the fire within it as, as being something like there's, there's, there's a connection there with, with a life of faith. And also can be contrasted, I thought, fairly helpfully with what I call normal everyday life. Right. Um, like the quotidian. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Um, and, and I feel like oftentimes religion and, and our faith practices become just another element of normal everyday life. Yeah. <clears throat> and, and of course, right. Of course it has to, it to has to in the world. It has to like bills need to get paid. You need right. to get the rift and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but to the extent that it becomes just that, to the extent that we lose the ecstasy, that we lose the desire, mm. uh, it, it, it becomes a shell. Um, yeah. And, and and our lives our lives become that way also. So yeah, um, there was there's a 
a monk by the name of Sebastian Moore, who's very important to uh, man. I wondered about him. I'd, I'd never heard of him. I saw him in some of your writings. He, he, I flagged him. He's somebody that I want to go back and, and reread or, or read for the first time. Yep, he's a theologian of desire. Oh, that sounds uh, amazing. Yep, yep, it's good stuff. And, and he talks about this, you know, this bouncing off of like our particular desires versus what he calls the ground of desire itself kind of thing. And very mm. kind of tilting in that way and and how you know our particular desires always you know again like the faces in the sphere can become to the extent that they're all isolated and conflicting and so forth problems in our life and 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 destructive um and the solution to this um in broad strokes is is finding that connection to the ground of desire itself Mm. to god um and so he, he was talking about four openings to Desire, um, I or to the ultimate ground of desire. I, I will forget them at this point. It's been a while. I know he talks about like one of them being like a relationship that moves from dependency to interdependency. Okay, I like that. So, um, taking uh, taking taking relational initiatives, like having the courage to emotionally like leave yourself exposed in a way that you know, invites, invites real relational connection, um, versus the much more closed down self-protective, um, approaches to other people that we normally do being another opening. And anyway, so there's a list of them. And I thought, I think, I think like this, this practice of just adventure could totally be another one of these. Mm. That was, that was the impetus for it. Um, and, and I took it from there and, 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 Again, like you picked up the two best things I ever wrote. So don't don't read anything else. Okay, uh, okay, I won't. <laughs> uh, on the academic page. So, and and I know this could get quite heady, but that but that's cool. Like like I think we need to go there. In, in the article, you know, you reflect on Tillich's distinction between depth and structure. Could could you just kind of like talk a little bit about that and how that kind of informs yeah. your thinking on adventure? And so, so Tillich, um, in the first volume of the systematic theology, um, you have reason and revelation, and then you have being in God. <clears throat> so um, he charts two very detailed ontologies around both of those. And the very highest level that we call God is, is, is the depth, the depth of being. Um, the next level, so that's that's top level. The next level down is the structure of being. Um, this is where this is where we live. We live in the structure, yeah. um, structure as related to depth. But um, but the very the, the defining thing of, of structure is that it occurs in separation. Again, like getting back to the sphere, you know, right? Uh, the kind of deal. Um, <clears throat> and separation is the pre presupposition of being able to reason at all because rationality and reason is always a subject that is reflecting on a object right and not something that is a part of you immediately there's a sense of separation and and the rational act occurs within that space yes Uh, and and you know that's just where we live We we live our lives as subjects separated from objects um trying to maintain our subjectivity and and you know, feeling threatened by the subjectivity of others and right. turning other subjects into objects mm. and, and, and a lot of this, this kind of stuff. Um, and so the normal everyday life occurs there. Prayer um, and, you know, in, in very kind of special moments, um, we can have an experience where suddenly normal everyday life collapses for us mm. sort of like the turning inward moment. Okay. Where this is what Till calls ecstasy. Mm. It's a point of union where for just a fragment of a moment, you feel not separated from all things. You feel united, like apart. You are, you are, you are God in, in a certain sense, you yeah. know, right? Like, yeah. This is the enlightenment kind of moment that that some have, and and I think um, <clears throat> that we can 
to a certain extent cultivate because like what what happens what happens with our engagement with other people in the world if we no longer feel everybody is a potential threat to us mm. what if we feel ourselves as being present in all things and all others how do we how are we motivated to treat other people if we feel them as if we not think of them but like feel them as as is ourselves in a way wow suddenly i mean this makes sense why of why people after they kind of like have these realizations start to feel like ecology in the natural world is sort of an important thing mm. uh, <laughs> feel themselves as a part of these processes and and interrelated relationships um this is why people will tend to think that you know no one um, is not you know worthy of love that that all people um, have a history and a story that you know we can understand and, and find ways to sympathize with and, yeah and to, um, it's it's a very abstract ontological picture but I feel like the implications of it um, are I mean they they're revolutionary for for one's entire experience of life mm. um, and so, um, so that connects to adventure in that um, it, it, it cultivates, you know, potentially it's one of those ways that can kind of cultivate those moments. But what I especially like about the adventure piece is, is the desire piece. Okay. Um, yeah. I was hoping you would say more about that. Which I resonated with um, probably the most out of that. Um, so... And, and that struck me from your, your last episode with the gentleman whose name I now forget, where he talks about the things you care about are not things that you choose, right? Mm. The things that light you up are, are more like, these are what the gods give you. Yes, yes. That line, that line really struck stuck with me. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I feel like um, for me, it has something, it has something to do with, um, just the world's a miraculous place, mm. and 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 it and it it lights me up with its beauty, and I oftentimes lose contact with that as I work to um, finish this house that I've started building. <laughs> make sure we are able to pay our bills. Um, make sure that all the kids get to uh, the things that they need to get to on time. Sure. And, Right? And so just you start to your your experience of just being alive starts to kind of close down um, in in ways that <clears throat> starts to feel kind of drab. Mm. Um, and so what what the Humphreys, Alistair Humphreys encourages people to do is go on little adventures. Mm. He calls them micro adventures. See these little disciplined um, excursions into the unknown. Um, you know, Part of that for him is I always involves jumping in a cold river or something and <laughs> stars in some strange location that you would never have thought of. But um, there's there is something about um, intentionally exposing yourself to the unknown that can that can kind of reconnect you with um, I don't know that sense of desire and that 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 spark of being alive. Mm. Um, part of that is also fear. Um, there is, there is exposing yourself <clears throat> to some of the dynamics of life that we normally try to avoid. Right. Cold, um, you know, wild animals that could be out there. Sure. Uh, and, and these kinds of parts of living. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's an interesting, interesting framework. Mm. You know, one of the things that's coming up for me is, I think a lot of people, I, I, I've been in this place too in my life, we we kind of think, okay, I know purpose and meaning and even like the meaning of life is really important. I've got to kind of try to figure that out. But it gets almost relegated to this intellectual space. And mm -hmm. and what I'm getting from you and and, and your articles and, and just wrestling with Tillich again is not that the intellectual side is, isn't important. I think it is. But but meaning and purpose and all of that is kind of an existential reality that we experience. And that's why the adventure piece is so energizing for me at the moment. It's it's like I can't just stay in my fucking head about this stuff. Like 
It's about actually getting out there and having an encounter with the depths. Yeah. Well, and so I'm going to, I'm going to point everyone to a little bit of Alan Watts. Um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Love that guy. Into Watts at all? Okay. Yeah. In fact, the, um, the guy that I interviewed last week, our first interview was on, um, it's called Beyond Theology, I think is the name of the book. We, we kind of did a discussion on one of Alan Watts' books. He's great. I, okay, super, super good. Yeah, I feel like the man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm jazzed to see that he's getting a, a bit of a resurgence here. Yeah, the, me too. And stuff like that. But <clears throat> so I've been, I've been getting a lot more acquainted with him just, you know, as I'm at work, I'll just listen to some lectures and things. But sure. he said something. About Doesn't he have a great life. voice too? Oh, <laughs> And that's the bummer. Like when you get some of the audio books, it's just not the same. I know. It's a huge yeah. disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, I love the way he just gets tickled with himself, you know? And yes. He just laughs. Yeah, there's just something so, so wonderful about that. But, you know, on the meaning of life thing, um, I, I can't remember this. Is, this is in the book I'm reading right now or a lecture, but, you know, he basically said that life, life has no meaning. Mm. There's no meaning because meaning is assuming that it's it's a thing that points to something else. Like words have meanings. Right. They're signs. They're just they're shapes and they point to something else. But life does not have meaning in mm. that sense. It doesn't point to anything else. Life is is the dance. Um, and that's where that's where again, like living life out of this sort of kind of adventurous mindset is it totally fits with that. Mm. Um, life is the exploration of, you know, the wondering what's around, you know, the next corner or over the next peak. Yes. Um, not, not to get anywhere specific. Like the end of the adventure is not the goal. It's being in it. And, and that, that's, that's a different headspace. Sure. Um, it, changes, it changes how you're, how you're dancing your life, I guess. Mm. Um, or it at least opens the invitation that, Maybe your life is a thing to be danced. Yes. Okay. So, so Alex, how would you? So, if let's, you know how how the word "end" can have like these two meanings, like almost like a like a, like a telos, but but it can also mean like like a literal end to something. If if life doesn't necessarily, have, in terms of meaning, doesn't have an end like that we're trying to get to, but there is an end in terms of this is what it's about. How, how how would you kind of understand? I mean, or let me let me not as, make an assumption, but do do you see that distinction between those two ways of thinking about end in terms of your project? Certainly, certainly. yeah. Um, so so you're flat out asking me what the what the meaning of life is. I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm biased, and I could be wrong, but I aren't feel we all? Like, but I love it. Yeah, no. Tell me your biased answer. <laughs> I'm a, I'm I'm an artistically inclined person, so the the notion that that our life is itself uh, <clears throat> a work of art that is mm. that is unfolding, um, that 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 it is the end. The end is occurring every moment, mm. um, and and you're part of making it. Um, that that's the most compelling way <clears throat> for me to think about it these days. Um, and I contrast that with the the form of faith that I was at, you know, in my late high school, early college years of sure. the end being, um, you know, you, you don't go to hell. Um, right. You, you related yourself rightly or believed in the right way, the right thing. Um, and, and then you got, got busy trying to make sure other people uh, got out of hell too. Mm. And that was, that's what life was. Um and so that was, that was, that was not super fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm much more compelled by like our, 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 life is, is, is it's a form of play. It's, yeah. it, um, it's dangerous when we take it too seriously. Mm. Oh, well said, Alex. Okay. Can, can we, cause I know I'll have to like sign off in just a little bit to, to rush to my office to see my first client this morning, but I was hoping we could, get into the secret life of Walter Mitty just a little bit. Um, I I, I just wanted to hear from you kind of what that movie meant to you. And maybe you could just riff a little bit on that, on that. It's not the final scene, but it's one of the the last scenes where we, I think we, for the first time see the um, Sean Penn character, Sean McDonald, and 
he has this great line in there where he reflects on you know the snow leopard and being in the moment i i just wanted to hear you kind of like reflect on that sure sure yeah because i was i i was reflecting on that in the in the blog post you read yes i, I just i just pre- presented my paper student okay in in oxford and then i was flying back home and on the way back home i stopped stopped in iceland and mm. oh okay the idea was for me to do a quick micro adventure. So I nice. hopped off the plane and I hitchhiked, um, hitchhiked to the start of, uh, of a trail in Iceland that took me up over the top of, uh, how do you pronounce the Eyjafjallajökull, <laughs> a volcano that, that blew its top in 2010. So I went like up along this river, just cascading waterfalls and the black rock and green lichens and, and the you know the mist forming from the the ocean as it you know ascended in elevation and and that that was the context I was in as I was reflecting on you know uh, the paper I just presented and the situation I now found myself in and and uh, of course I had my enormous DSLR camera like clipped to my pack like bouncing along as I'm <laughs> going there and every 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 spot I get to I want to stop and take a picture and. And I just realized that I I was um, you know in the process uh, I was kind of becoming a consumer. I was mm. kind of becoming something that I really don't hold a lot of esteem for. I was trying to like collect my experience as a sort of souvenir. Got you. And, and so that moment um, in the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, where uh, you have you have Sean Penn sitting there with his enormous camera to photograph uh, a snow leopard and and walter has been really um kind of doing his normal everyday life thing for quite some time until life starts to fall apart where mm. you know works for is being acquired and and his job is you know quickly falling apart and he's kind of at this moment where <clears throat> he was hoping to find like one last little shred that is going to like fix the normal everyday life, the piece that he will find. And, you know, he will, he will find the the missing picture that he was supposed to be in charge of. Mm. And that might save his job in some way or another and things will be okay. And, and so that's kind of the headspace he's in at the time. And, And so he's looking for the Sean character who, who he's might have the photo and he finds them up on this mountaintop and, and so he's having this conversation, like, where's, where's the photo? And, and Sean says, well, it's, it's in the wallet I gave you. It's in the little picture slot. Yeah. And, and Walter's like, that was a terrible idea. <laughs> that was, oh, I didn't find it. I threw it away. I was so mad. So, um, and, and, and Sean says, well, I, I thought it would be a cute gesture. You know, I was mm. being played. And Walter, you know, Walter symbolizing normal everyday life at this point is like, oh, too playful, too playful. What were you thinking? And then just at that moment, the the ghost cat shows up, you know, the the snow leopard. And and so um the the Sean character is just smiles with pleasure as he's as he's looking at the looking at the cat through the photo. And and Walter again, like, when are you gonna take it? Like you're here to do the thing. This is your job, like take mm. it, take the photo. And, and the quote from Sean is that, well, sometimes I don't. Mm. The moment, he says, when it's, when it's meaningful to me personally, sometimes I don't like the distraction of the camera. Which for me, I think is descriptive of, like, that's a moment of ecstasy. Yeah. Moment of, of that union that I'm talking about. Um, a turning to the point of connection within life um a not allowing the the separation uh the hustle and the bustle of everyday life totally wash out um that moment of 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 being with this crazy exciting unasked for totally gratuitous life that we live Mm. Uh, and so that's that's i think that's that's why that's a real meaningful kind of moment for me. And thank you for the question because I had not put any of that together in my head before mm. uh, you just spit it out here. Um, mm. 
but I think, I think that's what's going on there for me. That's so powerful. You know, one of the things that strikes me too, is I was listening to you and just kind of thinking about the movie, you know, the, the number 25, um, you know, photo, uh, the, the, the picture that was going to be on the, the final like cover of life. We, 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 what, what the Sean character calls the quintessence of life, you know, we, we fantasize throughout the movie. What could this be? You know, is it some incredible landscape? And at the end, right, we discover that it's actually just Walter Mitty, like looking at another photograph. Talk about the sacred in the quotidian, yeah. that the quintessence yeah. of life can be found in that as well. Yes, yes. And thank you for that. And and honestly, that is um, perhaps even a personal struggle of mine. Mm. Um, me too. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see that so much. So I, I get really interested in this, like, well, here's depth up here, and then here's structure down here. Mm. And the point is, you know, not structure, but depth, right? Um, but that, that's, not, that's not actually quite accurate um, in, in Tillich's ontology, because actually one of the things that occurs within structure for him is the relationship of structure and depth mm. is actually, <laughs> actually oh, a that's part good. of um, to to end on a very obtuse note but yeah that's that's correct thank you yeah absolutely okay well well alex well let me ask this how do i say your last name how, how do you, well if you're gonna take a is, crack at it is, 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 is it blondu no. <laughs> okay <laughs> we call it we just say blondo blondo just, just an o at the end gotcha that, Blond- that may not be true to the french roots that it came from but okay that's but Alex Blondo. Okay. So would you mind just ending with the line of the podcast, which is just by saying, continue the conversation? Continue the conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me. And there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.